the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. In episode 14, we have several overviews of the Artemis project, concentrating on the science objectives. Jacob Bleacher is the science exploration scientist in NASA's Science and Technology Utilization Office. In September of 2021, he gave this overview of the Artemis architecture. Now, what I would like to do is just kind of go over the Artemis architecture, what, what we have envisioned. Uh, and this first focused on what we're doing in order to get to the point of landing astronauts in the South Polar region of the Moon. We're showing kind of a sequence of activities that we expect to undertake. I think it's really important to note this is all based on our understanding from uh, prior missions. Um, and so we have drawn up lunar reconnaissance over here because it's still in orbit. So that we consider this kind of a, a starting point to the Artemis effort. But this builds upon, you know, all the mission, missions that were predecessors to Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter as well. Uh, but that has given us a, a very uh, good understanding of the moon. Uh, we know the topography. Uh, we have very high resolution images. We have, you know, well-developed theories and hypotheses over the last several decades that have built upon what we learned when we landed on the moon during Apollo. And so, from that basis of knowledge, we really are planning a new campaign for exploring the moon, um, new just right from the get-go and landing in, in a totally different place, not on the near side equatorial region, but in the south polar region. And landing there for a number of reasons with astronauts, one, to take advantage of access to sunlight. That's kind of our number one resource that we'll be using, because unlike elsewhere on the moon, when you spend half of a lunar day in sunlight and half of a lunar day in darkness, there are some locations here where we can really go from that uh, 14 Earth days of darkness down to maybe a few days of Earth darkness. And so that's a tremendous asset to us, a tremendous resource. Also, the South Polar region is a location where, based on all that knowledge we've gained over the last several decades, we think we can access volatiles as well. 
And that will be a really important piece of data for us understanding evolution of the solar system, evolution of the moon and the earth itself. Uh, so there are a number of reasons why we're going to these places um, in the South Polar region, but it's part of a campaign of exploring the moon. Um, the, the swoosh part shows the HEO launches that we expect to, to conduct in order to prepare for and successfully conduct that landing um, on the surface in the so we have a series of Artemis missions that will provide us with test flights, the Orion spacecraft launched on the SLS, that will give us a chance to, one, test out the hardware itself in Artemis 1, and then test it out with our astronaut crews in Artemis 2, all while uh, traveling out to the moon and returning safely. We'll also be putting in place the gateway. So the gateway uh, will serve as a platform from which we can continue to conduct research both in orbit, learning how to survive in deep space, as well as helping support activities on the lunar surface. And all of this leads up to a crewed Artemis mission that will land on the surface, uh, which will be our first humans on the surface of the moon in the 21st century. Now, HEO is conducting those, or HEO-MD, Human Exploration, is conducting those, those missions um, with the uh, Orion and then the Human Landing System. But all the while, we will be uh, continuing to land uh, landers on the surface of the moon uh, through SMD's uh, CLIPS, Commercial Lunar Payload Services. As SMD can certainly explain in more detail and has over the last several months, there are missions already um, identified for landings on the moon, and there will be more coming up. And so as you think about this, what you're seeing is that we have opportunities for science and technology research, both in orbit and on the surface of the moon, with um, activities that would also include astronauts in the South Polar region. Now, once we get that first crewed landing down to the surface, we will start to build up assets, both on the surface of the moon as well as in orbit. So Gateway will continue to have elements delivered to it that will increase capability in orbit. So as I mentioned, the Gateway provides a platform that supports our activities on the lunar surface, but also provides us an opportunity for learning how to survive in deep space, uh, so beyond low Earth orbit. That helps us prepare for further exploration in deep space beyond uh, the Earth-Moon system. But in addition to what our buildup in orbit, we will continue to build up on the surface as well. Um, and so we talk about an Artemis base camp buildup. So there are a number of assets that basically make up our concept of a base camp. We will begin to deliver habitable volumes to the surface. Those could be stationary habitats. Those could be mobile assets. Um, preceding that, we will also be delivering hardware that enables us to move astronauts and potentially payloads and science activities around on the surface, uh, both with crew, but also telerobotically. Many of you have asked about options for rovers and surface roving activities. These are all part of a vision that we have for building up capability and sustainable exploration of the moon. The goal here really is to continue to increase our access to the moon, increase the amount of time we're on the surface, increase the locations that we have access to. So what we're really trying to do here is, is develop a campaign for lunar exploration uh, that's that's starting now with um, our CLIPS landers over the next few years, uh, leading up to our first crewed landing. But habitation, how do we survive on the surface? How do we power these elements? How are we staying in communication, both with the Earth, with assets in orbit like the Gateway, and between assets on the surface of the Moon? Um, how are we navigating around the surface of the Moon as we use our mobility and conduct our EVAs? 
And how do we take advantage of the moon itself and its in situ resources? So I mentioned the sunlight as a, as a key resource for us, uh, but also the potential to access those volatiles uh, that are stored in the polar regions. So the key here is that we'll have astronauts, we'll have astronauts who are using rovers, we'll have rovers that don't need astronauts. So there will be a number of opportunities as we develop this campaign of lunar exploration in which we may want to use or access an arm of some kind. That was Jacob Bleacher. Also at NASA headquarters in Washington is Julie Robinson. She is chief scientist in the Human Exploration Operations Mission Directorate. In early 2021, she had her eyes set clearly on how to utilize Artemis science for future human trips to Mars. Thanks so much for um, inviting me to come and speak with you today. I have kind of four quick points I'm going to make in in this uh, short period of time. The first thing I want to talk about is what is the strategy and plan for human missions to the moon? So not just Artemis three the first woman and the next man to the lunar surface. But what is our long-term plan for human missions to the moon? What's the expected strategic value to space biology for both discovery and experimental science, as well as applied exploration research that could come from access to that location? What overall capabilities are coming in the architecture so that you can think about not only the very limited early opportunities, but the overall strategy of what can be accomplished using the lunar vicinity. Essentially, for those of you who have been users in low Earth orbit in ISS, you know we are at the stage that we were at 30 years ago in ISS, where we were defining the capabilities, the research disciplines, and how the architecture, what we'd call in the lunar surface, the architecture, contribute to those scientific research goals. The interesting thing about the moon is unlike a low Earth orbit platform where you're constrained in a volume, on the moon you can add infrastructure to a future base camp. And so that means we have a lot more latitude and flexibility in thinking strategically, which is a lot of fun. So first of all, what are we doing in landing humans on the moon in 2024? We have the set of things we have to do to get Orion and SLS qualified and operate those first missions. Those are new vehicles. New rockets, those are intense and heavily planned, and, and they're all, there's always additional risk when you're doing new hardware. So we have Artemis 1, which is the first human spacecraft to the moon. Then we have Artemis 2, where we actually put humans in the spacecraft, orbit the moon, and rendezvous in deep space. Then at some point, Gateway will come into the mix and be available, and then our initial human landing system will be available in lunar orbit. That still hasn't been selected yet. And then Artemis 3 is those components coming together uh, to have Orion bring the crew to orbit, get them to the SLS, and then land on the surface. And that's that first Artemis III mission. There are a lot of pieces in the puzzle to get to that point. But this is not the end of what we're thinking about as what Artemis looks like overall. So as you move out, we start extending those lunar missions. And a big part of that is preparing for Mars so that we have even dual purpose habitats. As we learn to live and work on the lunar surface, we are also learning to live and work on the Mars surface. 
And we have this unique combination of different space flight hazards that we are addressing in these challenging environments. And so the use of lunar missions is both for its own science, its own scientific objectives, as well as for these moon to Mars or Mars forward uh, strategic accomplishments. And so you see us moving, adding a lunar terrain vehicle, eventually a surface habitat, a pressurized rover that could also be a temporary surface habitat, vision surface power systems, pilot plants for doing ISRU. So there's a suite of technology advancement and demonstration included in this longer term architecture as you head toward the very first lunar base camp. And by base camp, we mean something, you know, pretty limited. This is not a village on Earth, on the moon, but it is maybe a little bit more like a base camp on the flanks of Mount Everest. But it also represents a significant advancement in infrastructure and similar, then starts looking pretty similar to what our early missions to Mars might look like. So we identified the overarching Artemis science objectives. As you look at conducting experimental science in the lunar environment, that is the bread and butter of biological and physical sciences, including space biology here. But as you heard both Kevin and Sharmila say, there's also the ability to use model organisms and living systems to investigate and mitigate exploration risks. At the same time, when we shift to the human domain and using the crew as subjects, we want to make sure that we keep those flows happening because biology is an integrated science between experimental science in the lunar environment and this focus on exploration risks. And so matches those flows of knowledge. And of course, as Steve mentioned, the five hazards of human spaceflight are really the basis for how we look at risks to living organisms, whether they be crew or um, other organisms. And the duration of those experiences is really important. So when we think about crew health and performance in Artemis spacecraft and how that will help us prepare to live and work on Mars, we can line up those hazards with the conditions on the lunar surface and the conditions on the Mars surface. And many of these parameters are similar. The exploration, the atmospheres are different outside, of course, for the crew, but the atmospheres inside the habitable environments may be pretty similar. The dust is different, but there is dust to deal with. The biggest difference is fast communications and really probably not so much a two to three day return from the lunar surface, it's probably almost a 14 day return by the time you get into lunar orbit and then do all your transfers. And then from Mars, you have a nine-month return and a really extensive calm delay. That's what makes the lunar surface a perfect test for Mars forward objectives. Also then, the volumes, the habitats, the facilities, and the durations are likely to be very similar to what we expect in the first missions to Mars of about 30 days on the surface. So we can think of analogs of different mission phases. Early mission operations are good analogs for the first Mars landing. As we extend duration and infrastructure, we may be, we also have the ability to do combination missions with a duration of transit where crew members spend more time on the gateway, where they could do additional research in lunar orbit and then land on the surface and carry out a mission. That lets us really look at the integrated system and the ability of our habitation and our other systems to support crew health and performance, as well as the ability of our countermeasures to counteract some of the effects of gravity transitions and other risks. So this is a way of representing that, that you know, we have matches on many of these different parameters, but the radiation, the isolation and confinement definitely depend on the duration. So these early missions, if the crew's only on the surface for five or six days and the total mission is only 20 or 30 days, 
we're really not going to see a radiation environment that's predictive of Mars. But we do have the ability later in the architecture as we get more of the capabilities that we would want on the Mars surface to do Mars forward kinds of exploration test missions. And so that's an important component as we think strategically about how do we make the moon part of the U.S. economic sphere? How do we have commercial participation in lunar exploration? You know, what is the 20 year plan for the moon? Um, in addition to what is our near-term plan for getting the first cruise back to the surface. One is that many times we need to do cross-platform work. So we can do research on Earth, such as research and develop a crop system that might be appropriate for space. Then we can test that in ISS to make sure we've looked at microgravity crop production, and that gives us reliability for Mars transit. Once we get to Gateway, we have deep space radiation we could look at seed viability, we could validate a Mars transit crop system someday, but a uh, lunar surface is a very different system. Um, if Mars were only gonna be on the surface of Mars for 30 days in early missions, we would not need a crop system on the surface right away. And so looking at those trades across different architectures and how we build and use each platform appropriately is a really important area for critical thinking. Um, I showed a similar flow here for the microbiome of the built environment where we can look at continuous occupancy and turnover in a closed space habitat on ISS. We can also prove our in-situ monitoring technology. But once we have gateway and lunar systems, we start having intermittent occupancy rather than continuous occupancy. We add deep space radiation. And then as we move to the surface, we can use lunar surface testing to make sure that we understand how we're spreading microbes around a surface, even a relatively sterile surface like the moon. So doing the right analog studies across these platforms and being able to pull the results together is really important in making sure we've accomplished some of the Mars forward research objectives. Similarly, our human research on ISS connects to our initial Artemis research where we're still taking relatively finite measures associated with those deep space risks. But eventually, as we get to these extended Artemis missions where the crew is in orbit and, and the durations of the missions are much longer, we then combine together what we've learned from extended ISS one-year missions with what we can learn from extended lunar missions as Mars analogs, and that really helps us reduce our overall risk. So for Artemis three, Artemis three is a very, uh, small mission compared to what we expect the long-term capabilities of Artemis to be. It's about two crew living in the landing system cabin for about six and a half days on the surface, up to four spacewalks, maybe a contingency, a variety of samples to return to Earth for later research. So rock samples, core tube samples, paired samples, and there's very limited and shared sample up mass and down mass because we can't be certain that we would have precursors like CLIPS because it's this first mission, we can't be sure exactly where we'll land. We may have to make some landing site decisions uh, late in the flow based on the date of the launch, for example. So this early architecture is much more limited than the long-term architecture would be. Early gateway science payloads are, of course, quite exciting, and that work's been going on for a couple of years. That includes HERMES, which is a heliophysics environmental radiation and measurement suite as well as a European Space Agency radiation investigation called URSA. And those are sort of the first two instruments that will launch with the first gateway elements. And those will continue to operate and continue when uncrewed. So another really important thing to think about in lunar science is how you leverage 
data from gateway, instruments on gateway versus instruments on the surface uh, that can operate in uncrewed mode versus the hands-on crewed activities, which will be the most limited, but also can offer really unique assets. Eventually, we believe that the CLIPS payload systems will be synergistic. So we'll be able to, as we move towards a base camp, we'll be able to reliably pre-position equipment and perhaps even have dedicated lab equipment that comes separately from the human missions and those things leverage each other. So that's a really exciting uh, advance that makes the overall lunar architecture much less limited than when we only have a pressurized vehicle in orbit, such as, as we have with ISS today. So as we get to Artemis Base Camp, that long-term surface access enables both extended duration studies and uncrewed activities. The extended duration studies are really important both those studies where biological samples or cultures may be left behind by a crew and operate for a long period of time so they get the total radiation exposure at the same kind of flux that we expect to see on Mars missions. But then also as we get crew members spending more time there, that helps us add fidelity for long duration exposures for the crew to the different hazards of spaceflight. And of course, we're living and working on a surface, which is really important model for Mars. In order to get humans back to the moon, certain enabling technologies are needed. Rene Weber is the co-chair of the science definition team at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. She has some recommended enabling capabilities, which she announced in April of 2021. Some other enabling capabilities, one of the recommendations in the report focused on what we called sort of opportunity lost. If the first of a series of both geophysical and environmental network nodes is not deployed, um, so this will be similar to something like what was done with ALSEP during Apollo. And then the Artemis 3 node can be augmented by both future robotic and human missions, and that would build towards a global network of observations. And so um, while we might be able to do incremental science with individual short-lived experiments, the report recommended that NASA continue to pursue options um, for both long-lived power and communications, which are both requirements needed um, for a, a, an LSEP-like package. Um, so that's going to allow meaningful progress on many of the science goals and, of course, provide feed forward to future missions. And then lastly, there was a specific recommendation in the report um, for geodetic monitoring via Earth-based laser ranging. So, um, you know, once positioned, a laser retroreflector um, requires no power and no communication. Um, so it provides science return even in the absence of those capabilities. So the, so the report did advocate for that capability on Artemis three. Jack Burns is a professor of astrophysical and planetary sciences at the University of Colorado, Boulder. At a meeting of the United States Space Council, as the Artemis project was being defined, he voiced these opinions. The moon is the obvious and practical destination for space exploration in the next few years. However, before we begin, we need to clearly articulate the reasons for going to the moon so the Congress and the public will embrace this goal. Pieces of this plan exist currently, but it also lacks cohesion. 
Those components include things like the commercial lunar payload services, the CLIPS program. Secondly, before we put boots on the ground at the poles, we urgently need a robotic water ice prospecting mission to the lunar poles. The water ice is a game changer. Uh, potentially, uh, we can break those constituents of hydrogen and oxygen and reassemble them into rocket fuel. But it's a very challenging exercise. Those permanently shadowed craters are at a temperature of only 40 degrees above absolute zero. How difficult is it for humans and machines to operate under those challenging conditions? What is the nature of that water ice? How easy or difficult is it to extract? So we need a mission in the next couple years to get this going. We also need a mission, a robotic mission, to the lunar far side to return samples. Recently, we heard about the Chinese landing on the far side. I personally was greatly disappointed that the U.S. was, the, uh, was not the first um, on the moon. This is after spending tens of millions of dollars of NASA funding to plan uh, what uh, exploration and science missions are. But of course, there's still much to be done from the far side. The far side contains the oldest, deepest, largest impact basin in the solar system called the South Pole Aiken Basin. And many of us are excited by that because we consider that region to be the history book of the early solar system, holding the secrets of the bombardment history that shaped the Earth and also during that time period uh, led to the first formation of life on our planet. So lastly, a sustainable lunar program must include uh, humans on the surface. Uh, as the Vice President said, uh, by the middle uh, of this decade, by 2024, uh, not the end of the decade as we've heard about previously. Today, we can do rapid prototyping and development of a human lander that reuses systems and technology from origin, uh, from the Orion rather, the Curiosity and the Mars InSight lander. Let's make sure we are taking advantage of that. Finally, if this strategic vision for lunar development is to succeed, we must change our tolerance for risk. And that's not just the agency, that's also the Congress and the American public. This will require a culture change where failure is not a fault, but rather an opportunity to learn and to improve. Equally important is stability. Stability of national leadership, stability of our goals for the space program, where long-term targets and proper funding are maintaining, are maintained, giving us all the best opportunity to succeed. James Hidd from Brown University, Rhode Island, worked on the Apollo lunar samples. And he has some very good ideas about what should be done on the moon. So what should our goals be on the moon? Should there be science, resource extraction, or tourism? He expressed these thoughts in March of 2022. Well, I, I you know, I'm a scientist, so I, but, I, but I worked in Apollo. So there were national goals and objectives, and then there were scientific goals and objectives. And the scientific goals and objectives were really important. Uh, they, they really ruled the day, uh, you know, once we had successfully been able to, okay, we can land, now we can explore, okay? So that, that's critically important. And I think... Those kinds of things will absolutely be uh, topmost in priority uh, for future human lunar exploration. That certainly is the way the Artemis program is going at the present time. On the other hand, we want to stay longer. We want to have a base, and that requires resources. So, you know, that requires water. 
Okay, so we're hoping that there's water in the polar regions, um, you know, in, in permanently shadowed areas that has been sequestered there and may be available for, for uh, you know, I would say mining, okay? But, but before we drink that water, I really want to see what the chemical composition is, not just because, because I don't want to drink it till I know that, but I also want to see, this is a record, a record of the volatile history of the solar system. So it's an incredibly valuable scientific resource. And before we use it uh, to be crude, well, you know, to use it for washing our hands, uh, we, we, we really want to be able to study it in detail. So I think scientific priorities are important. But if we're going to stay on the moon for any length of time, which is the plan, then we'll need to look at resources like water. In Antarctica, for example, when we fly into our fuel areas in the dry valleys and get dropped by helicopters, we don't take cans of water because we know from the orbital images that there are patches of snow and ice there. And we actually just go out with a shovel and a bag and fill it full of ice and bring it back and heat it up for our drinking water. Uh, and uh, our wash water. And uh, so, you know, it's a little bit the same on the moon. We like to be able to have that capability to not have to bring water all the way from the earth, but to use it for, uh, for those purposes for permanent bases. And of course, you can also use it maybe to make rocket fuel. So all of these things are important. I think any commercial development or tourist development, you know, maybe is, is, is more in the one or two more decade uh, after, you know, timescale, after we really learn how uh, to live on the moon.